joining me on the ATP Radio podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by someone who's, wow, a lot of titles, writer, author, speaker, consultant, has written for a lot of outlets, Tennis.com, New York Times, Joel Drucker, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here with you, Joel. Terrific. And here, here for Tennis Channel, it's just great. Now, it's, it's a pleasure to have you because you have been around the sport for so, so many years. I know you're a historian of the sport. Just give us a little bit insight maybe to how you got involved and what, what you feel like has been so impactful for you being around the sport so much. I'll tell you a funny story from when I was 12 years old okay. and I began playing tennis in Southern California in the 70s. The game is booming. This is 1972, 73. And my family had moved to California, and my mother started playing tennis. And so I'm playing, I'm playing tennis, but I also I'm kind of one of those sports geek people. I'm one of those people who likes to read about baseball and football and basketball. So one day I'm reading World Tennis Magazine, which I read all the time. And I say to my older brother, hey, it's Julie Hellman's birthday. She's one of the original nine or something. And I say, she's 27 tomorrow. My older brother looks at me. He gives me this look like the time older brothers look. He goes, you know, if you play tennis a little more than you read about it or talked about it, you might be a good player one day. That's a good point he made. But I would say, per the poem, and that has made all the difference. I mean, I became an okay civilian tennis player, but I think at heart, you know, we're all sent here for certain reasons sometimes, and I think it's kind of like, oh, I was meant to be someone who wrote and devoured the game and the texture of the game, and I love the game, and maybe I never got jaded because it wasn't like I was an exceptionally accomplished tennis player so I never reached the burnout stage like oh I lost in the second round of Kalamazoo that was never in my world well I mean it's interesting and it's it's great to have you here because you were also around at that time when the original nine kind of boosted through just can you think of some memories that stood out to you that were so impactful obviously they've had a huge impact on the women's game but overall on tennis in general well I think in tennis in that time I think to come of age in tennis in the 1970s for tennis it's kind of like being around rock and roll in the 60s so the game was just going bonkers and I'm growing up in Southern California I'm going to Tony Traber tennis camp he's there every day he's the Davis Cup captain and he's the broadcaster on CBS so Personally, I'm having the same guy tell me how to play my tennis, and six weeks later, he's saying the same things about Rod Laver. So that's vivid. And I remember going to junior tournaments and seeing great players like um, Walter Redondo and Stacey Margolin and, of course, Tracy Austin. And she's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and she's playing the same junior tournaments me and my friends are playing. So in a way, to occupy Southern California was to already be in the center of the universe. It's not like you had to go there. It was already there in front of us. I mean... Uh, People like Tony Trabert and Jack Kramer and Jimmy Connors were having their rackets strung at the same store in Westwood where my buddies were having our rackets strung. So it's like, here's the game. It's all around us. And when, did, when was it that you wanted to know that you wanted to start writing about tennis? Well, that was more circuitous. That happened. I started playing when I was 12. And when I went to college, I knew I, I by a sophomore, I wanted to be a writer. But that was kind of backwards. I was going to go to Washington, D.C. after I graduated college. I was going to uh, write about politics and culture and topics of significance because I'd been a history major in college. And I had a chance to write, to cover a local tournament. I covered a local tournament called the California Open at the Berkeley Tennis Club. Um, let's see, a guy named Scott McCain won the men's, Stephanie Savides won the woman. And whoa, tennis. It's like the girl next door. Of course, I was meant to be the tennis. I wrote a a silly story wrote based on like the movie Double Indemnity, like a film noir tennis satire. And I wrote that. I wrote an opinion piece. I thought, oh, of course. I was sent to write tennis. I wrote a piece about Jimmy Connors' college paper, and I ended up meeting him. I, got, I had an interview with the Wimbledon champ a month after graduating college. 
That's incredible. That's awesome. So that kind of propelled it. Yeah. And, and you've been so lucky to be around so many of the greats of the sport from what you just mentioned, Connors McEnroe, and then, of course, Sampras Agassi. And now at this very special time where we have the big three, the big four that have been around, what um, could you, I mean, I think a lot of us never imagined there would be a time that anyone would beat Sampras' record of 14 slams. It's just incredible. Right. Um, what were some of the sort of the biggest stories, maybe the biggest characters that you would say that you really loved writing about? Some of your favorite oh, over moments. Over the 40 years, I think. It's uh, a tough one, I know. Yeah, I think for <laughs> me, look, I wrote a book called Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. So they, and they say the golden age of sports ends when the athletes start getting younger than you. So there's always going to be part of me that's going to be 14, 16, 17, looking at Connors and Borg, and then McEnroe's a year older than me, and then he comes around. But So that's kind of a seminal formation, but then it gets into the more, the skill, the craft. I mean, a lot of great Sampras Agassi matches. That kind of was the, the first big rivalry I kind of tracked through for a lot of my career. Um, to see them, like the last match they played at the U.S. Open in 2002, was very compelling. I mean, it's so funny how fast history goes, Jill, that you think I that know. Um, uh, people like uh, like Pete Sampras, you're right, when he won that 14th slave, that's unbelievable. How's that going to happen? And then, woof, three guys three, come I around know. who are geniuses. I mean, I was there when um, uh, when Federer won some of his great titles. Seeing, seeing these guys is an appreciation of the game itself, but it's different personally for me emotionally because I felt a little more established in my career so it's like okay I could take those guys and more purely through the mind I think Connors was more through the heart because that was someone who I tracked as a child and there were times like fans now with the big three I would live and die with a Jimmy Connors match and then I was cutting my teeth more with Sampras and Agassi but by the time Federer, Djokovic and Nadal come around it's like okay I see these guys my they're great but it's all but you saw them on the up and coming so what was your initial impression when you saw those three coming up. I was and at four. We should add Murray, Murray too. Well. I was at the Federer match when he beat Sampras at Wimbledon 01. But Federer, you know, I'd seen him you'd seen him in the bit in the juniors and seen him and I was like, wow, this guy is so smooth. Remember that? I think I remember that headband that he had, you know, that whole thing on his head and just how smooth and how I be being in the press conference when he was 19, he beat Sampras and he's very emotional about it. It's like, wow, this guy's just enjoying himself. So I think the thing with Roger that struck me from the get-go is how he's always kind of going downstream. It's like he'd have been a great yoga teacher. Okay. Never, never, never pushes it. Always going downstream. Roger, okay. Never efforting. Never kind of aware of time, aware of balance. You know, never feeling. You ever be around Roger Federer and look like he was rushed? No, never. Whether and I that, mean, I didn't know him when I when he was younger. Obviously, you saw him when he was a junior. Right. Well, I just mean like his whole demeanor around events. Right. Like I mean, both of us have been around him at a, enough events in selected ways, and you see, he's just he's just gliding. He's just gliding. He's just gliding through the lounge. He's gliding into the practice court. He's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if you've been part of it, but I've been part of the media day at Wimbledon where you have to do this whole line of interviews and we're all waiting with our two or three questions. And, and he's just utterly tranquil. Yeah. So and you mentioned the word rivalries. How important as a writer do you feel like for the public a rivalry is? How important do you feel that? Rivalries make things vivid because it's easy to find someone to root for and someone to cheer against. And, and I think in this sport, it's very personal. In the team sports, you root for an institution. You root for, like, the New England Patriots, the San Francisco 49ers. Whereas, but that's kind of faceless. In tennis, it's kind of personal it's like that's my proxy named Roger that's that's me playing versus him and I think people um, 
people enjoy that, and people take a lot of um, passion at it, even if they don't know tennis. Even they don't know anything about tennis, they enjoy the fact that, the Roger, that's who I want to be. Look how smooth he is. Oh, Rafa, what a, what a fighter. And have you ever, I mean, you've written so much over the decades, but have you ever written a, a story, because it is about personalities, especially in an individual sport, have you ever written a story where you feel like you could tell it's had an impact that it, is, it has really brought fans into the sport? Oh, something that kind of crossed beyond into something else. Well, you know, I think in a way... Anytime you write about someone like Billie Jean King, that's on a higher plane. I mean, we've both spent time around her, and you realize you're around someone who's kind of in the game and beyond the game and then back to the game. And so the chance to talk with Billie Jean King is so remarkable because she can go in the same 20 minutes from one minute talking about a meeting with a first lady. You realize, wow, tennis is on the global conversation. To the next minute, she's asking about how some guy taught the forehand. And she's right in the game that yeah. way. And she says, really? Really? Do you want to do, when you spin, do you serve or receive? You know, she's going to ask you the most <laughs> tennis kind of question. So I think writing about her, I think writing about Billie Jean King, I, I interviewed Arthur Ashe only once for a long time, so I didn't get to write about that often. But How I was that? Was that was Tell fantastic. us a little bit about that, yeah. Arthur Ashe, she felt, it felt global. It's like, wow, this is the game at the broadest level in the sport and the world, and he's sophisticated, and we're talking about him at UCLA and his matches and education um, and, and books. We were each happened to be reading the same book at the same time, this history of the civil rights movement in the 60s, and uh, it's really neat being around someone like that. I think those two people make you feel like, wow, tennis hits the world. Yeah, it really is such an international sport. And this is a loaded question. It might be a very difficult question. You might need more time to think about it. But out of all the players and coaches and whoever you've interviewed, have any statements stood out to you that had an impact on, on your career as a writer? Well, okay. This will take me back to Jimmy Connors. I'll tell you one thing Jimmy Connors told me. This just has to do with tennis, but maybe it has to do with life. He's talking about work habits and tennis and preparation. It, explain, it explains how even... Uh, I'm a four or five tennis player, but this explains how I like to play tennis. Jimmy Connors said, he says, you know, if you play every match like it's the big match, when the big match comes, you're ready. So maybe it gave a sense of how you go about... Um, doing things and conducting yourselves and I am a, I'm fanatical about about my work about preparing I did a lot of work in television which is a collaborative thing and that involves preparing and helping other people so you got to hit timing and deadlines and information it's very it's kind of like it's not exactly an assembly line but it kind of is I mean you know since you work in broadcast media how inter you know other people are counting on you you got to be ready to have things um, I think the statements, though, tennis players have given me more through their rackets. Okay. If you study the game. Explain the that. Game. I mean, the quotes, what they say is to me is never more than 49% of what matters to me. What matter, what I've spent time doing is studying the game and seeing how they conduct themselves, how they play points, how they practice, how they hit the ball. I mean, I'm studying, you know, again, you're a world-class player. So to you, yeah, these are all my fellow world-class players. But to the civilian, it's... Well, how do they do that? I mean, watching someone... I remember once watching Connors and Macro practice for an hour, and I'm left-handed. I'm just mesmerized watching this footwork and this balance and the eyes on the ball. It's like, this is fantastic. I mean, it's just so the tennis itself. And then the professional challenge or the opportunity is to translate that into words. What does that mean? What does that look like? And how do they do that so well? I mean, and so to me... 
the racket is the is the thing that's speaking. And I what mean, did that teach you? Did you feel like? I think like? that teaches, well, in the metaphoric way, it teaches about discipline and concentration and focus and devotion. I mean, you watch a pro tennis match up close and you see how much effort it takes to really win a tennis match. I was asked once if a tennis player was smart, if they're intelligent, and I was at a classic, typical, my club in Berkeley, lots of people, advanced degrees. I said, well, I'm not sure he has a pile of New Yorkers by his bed. I'm not sure he's reading the New York Times Sunday Magazine or wondering about the next novel he's going to read. But I said, but you know what? You go out there for three hours, you don't say a word, you play a tennis match, and you approach every point like it matters, and you think about the point, and it's 15 all, and now how do I play the 15-30 point, and that's different than the 30-15 point, and you don't have a uh, other players and you got to play the whole match you tell me what's intelligent so I think what tennis has taught me is a lot about how you devote yourself to something in a deep way and the other thing though tennis has taught me is how to play better tennis and that's worthwhile in its own right I mean it doesn't need to be it doesn't always need to be a return on investment like a life lesson like oh I mean I kind of got the tenacity piece a long time ago I mean if you hang around tennis for what two years you watch enough tennis yeah you got to work pretty hard okay so what's that mean and we, we spoke earlier also about, that's fascinating insight, by the way, I agree. I think, I, I just think sports in general is so good for life lessons, and tennis in particular, being out there on your own. As far as, because I know you're a huge historian too, also wrote a lot about for the history for the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, do you feel like, you had mentioned that you feel like the history of the game is so important for present day players to learn and to grow. How so, would you say? Well, look, it's like any other craft, whether it's music or art. I mean, if I was a musician, I'd want to know who Bach was or who Beethoven was because these are the masters who've done it before me. And what techniques do they do? What music? I think there's a tendency in tennis, because it's so competitive, that we kind of subsume the past. It's like, well, this guy lost. He wouldn't be any good anymore. But go... Go watch it. For example, I'll show you the link between Chris Everett and Novak Djokovic. Look how they play. Look how they Tell play. me the link. The link is people who are balanced, who could play with a phone book on their head, <laughs> who are such good footwork and are so good at hitting ball after ball, cross court and deep. I mean, and, and the language, I think sometimes we have some weak language for tennis, like call someone steady. No, Chris Everett, she's applying pressure. I mean, you know, Jill, you played at the highest level. Someone hits... One ball inside your baseline by an inch, it barely catches your eye. Two, when someone is hitting three or four balls, four inches inside your baseline, you ask if you can get a lawyer. I mean, you are pinned. You are feeling pressured. And I think if people study that and learn from that, it creates a richer experience at all levels of the game. And you can it, it's not just our appreciation, but our, our technique. You can see things from what people did and how they won matches and, and how they fought psychologically. Where do you see the game going now? I think the game is going to be, hopefully, we see people like Carlos Alcaraz more all-court, hopefully, that people are seeing, like I hear a phrase often, the game of today. And I think, I don't want to play the game of today. I want to play the game of tomorrow because the game of tomorrow is going to beat the game of today. And what do you feel like is the game of tomorrow? I think the game of tomorrow is going to continue to involve some of these incredibly lethal ground strokes. I mean, I, I was sitting courtside for a match between Davidovich, Fokina, and Garen the other day, and... You sit courtside and you see how much more physical. We don't call them clay court specialists. We have fast court specialists. What the game has become in the post Lendl Agassi era: heavy ground strokes, quality ground strokes. However, the difference in that match was the Davidovich Fakina threw in a couple of slices, came to net a couple of times, and I think people are seeing, hmm, how does this work into the mix? 
the mix. And I don't know quite what it's going to be, but with people standing eight feet behind the baseline to return serve, I think a guy like Stefan Edberg with a kick serve would have a field day. Say, I'm going to just, I'm not going to ace you. I'm going to hit a 79-mile-an-hour kick serve out to your backhand. I'm going to run to my right, and I'm going to hit a forehand angle drop volley. And I hope more players in their development phase learn that surely Alcaraz did. Look what Alcaraz, I, I, don't you think when Alcaraz was 14, 15, he might have been spending 20 minutes just running that sequence? St- well, I mean, I've heard Juan Carlos Ferro, that was the first thing he noticed about Alcaraz, was how at such a young age he was already willing to come forward. I think that's what, what caught his eye from, from my understanding. But when you're sitting courtside like that, I'm trying to think about your writing as well. Out of the last like 10 years, because the game has grown, has gotten more physical, what, what do you feel like you've written mostly about the men's game? Is the physicality or is it the variety? What has stood out I to you? I would say, the th- oh, that's an incredible question. Um, I think what has to, what's probably, it's probably the physicality, it's probably the power, and that the court, this is kind of the post-Luxalon influence. The court has become less of a rectangle and more of a circle. That people are, are, are because you can hit the ball off the court now. Like when you were more playing angles, Jill, it was right. more, you hit through the court. The ball went, you hit it straight, and it went straight. Or you hit a cross-court foreign, and it still kept going straight. Now you hit, if a righty hits a cross-court foreign, that second ball needs to go west of the alley. And, and so people are forced to cover so much more court and respond from it. I mean, I think terms, I, I think what I find myself migrating towards is a transcendence of the terms offense and defense. Defense today's defense isn't your the defense of your time. It's some. It's not just like reset with a high deep one. It's like no, you gotta recrush, and so you gotta practice hitting cross court backhands from four feet wide of the court. So the court is a much bigger amount of space to cover. Than are, it was. are you contributing that mainly to the string? Because you said Luxon. I think it's a combination of things. I think I think the strings were kind of the final. You know, it's like a, a it's like a recipe of food. I think it was. The 200 backhand all along was propelling that as far back as Everett and Connors and Borg, and it kept and the and the rackets came along, and the fitness and the sports training. There's so much more sports. There's so much more knowledge now about how to keep the body fit and supple. So many more. So much more money to give you the team to help you do it, and then the strings. About 20, 25 years ago, we ah, the final thing. The strings allow the contemporary player to generate tremendous racket hit speed and the string acts as a governor. It's the exact opposite of the old days where the racket was kind of dead and the string was lively with like VS gut. So the ability to generate racket hit speed and pace and spin, I mean, what did someone call a, a passing shot now is like a it's like a fast dipping curveball. Wow, do they? That's pretty cool. That's a, I like that, that description. <laughs> wouldn't that be that's what's yeah. on Mark Kovacs yeah. Oh, okay, Mark. Yeah. A, a yeah. fast dipping curveball. So it's no longer where is the passing shot flat? Okay. If it's spin, well, it's probably less pace. Yeah. Now it's both. Yeah. And so it's wicked. That brings up an interesting question for me because um, as a writer, I guess mainly like how you push yourself, but how much, since you're so involved in tennis and already know so much, how much do you study those other aspects like strings, rackets, fitness? travel, recovery, how much as a writer do you study those things or do you pay pretty much attention to what's happening on the court? No, I like to, my supplemental work is like talking to coaches. Okay. Just talking to coaches and experts. That I like to think, it's, it's funny and it's kind of, it's kind of a, a, what would I say, 90% of it is for the work so I can write stories. 10% is my own selfish player 
uh, desire to learn things. Oh, that might help me. Like a coach, a coach gave me an insight into an electrolyte drink a number of years ago when I was playing in Texas. Um, and but to get back to the game itself, it's not always an extensive study. It's more peripheral because the real focus is on the matches themselves. But the thing is, well, what are the players doing? away from the matches. Well, that's what I'm asking, kind of yeah. I Do you like, pay attention to that a lot? I like to talk to coaches about that. It's hard to it's hard to study that because I don't know it. I don't know what they're doing in Dubai in that off week. But what I can do is talk to the coach and find out about um, maybe a training routine, a drill, or to learn things. I think that that might be a new frontier in, in journalism because we're seeing more and more of these players have pit crews. You know, even 15 years ago, it was like, what, one coach? Had a coach, right. maybe a physio, maybe, but it was the tour physio. Now these players are having two to four people with them. So and and, and those physio types are more important than the um, than the tennis guy. The tennis guy is incremental. I get it. He's going to give you some more scouting and all that. But the player knows a lot about the tennis. But the physio, the guy who can help keep the body strong. I mean. The, you know, Jill, you had a great long career. You would have played another 15 years if you had some. I stuff. wish. <laughs> yeah, and you played a long time. So, so the question is, how do you understand? How do how do we understand this stuff? And I think I'm not going to just want to talk to the coach now. I'm going to want to start talking with the right. physios and see what do you do? What's the stretching routine? What's the off-court routine? The nutrition, but not. I'll admit, I haven't. I'm still kind of lower division on understanding that stuff because it changes, and every player has their own deal. Changes all the time. It's yeah. not as we have a lot of data about the tennis piece where we know, oh, yeah, right, practice serves. Oh, yeah, cross courts and down the lines. You know, you watch, I mean, I asked Paul Anacone once about Roger in Dubai. But what does Roger do in Dubai? He goes, doesn't do anything anyone else can't do. He just does it, he just takes to it quicker. The same kind of two on one drills, 11 point games, all the stuff that every tennis player should mm-hmm. know. And since you've seen, seen these entourages come on tour with a lot of these players, have you visually seen a difference in your eyes with the way the players are playing? Or is it more about the physicality? No, again? I think it is. I think what the players see, so the commodity is going to be fitness and health. Everyone's going to match each other on that. That's why I'm going to go back to my, my beloved 70s volley. That's going to be the differentiator, because if we're all equally fit, if we're all equally got our racket perfectly calibrated, and we all have our electrolyte drink, and we all have all our kind of hardware in order, so the upside is going to be which apps can we best avail ourselves of? Mm-hmm. Which app? Oh wow! You mean you have a kick serve too? You have a kick serve, and you can serve and volley. That's going to def- so it's got it's always going to come back to the the performance on the court. Mm-hmm. And do you, out of the men's game, do you feel like, are there favorite players that you like to write about? Like to write about or like to watch? Oh, both. You know, I have two, I, I look at my job in two ways. Professionally, think of me like a, it's like I'm like an ice cream critic. And I have to understand every flavor of ice cream because my obligation is to read. That's a good analogy. Is to, thank you. Is to, explain <laughs> to, is to explain to the reader, there's vanilla and there's chocolate and there's rhubarb and there's... Um, there's rhubarb and there's pralines and cream and I've got to explain to you that's my professional obligation but I'm and, and I'm going to bring that no matter who I'm writing about nonetheless I have themes that matter to me I have players I like for example I would rather watch Leila Fernandez than Juan Martin Del Potro Del Potro is a great player but it's like a music some people don't like Bruce Springsteen Del Potro for me personally I'm left-handed I'm 5'7 so you could see why Leila Fernandez would have appealed yeah. to me yeah. as you can relate person. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, well, it's kind of, and it's kinesthetic. It's like, wow, that's what I should be doing on my forehand. And, but, but professionally, 
I wouldn't be doing my job if I was constantly like advocating. Saying, Why isn't Del Potro playing left-handed? <laughs> you know, like I like Kazakhstan. You like learning. Right, you well, like I like learning. learning. Well, look, yeah. I think the neat thing about this game, more than the team sports, is we can relate to it elementally. What, how many percentage of people go to tennis and they're watching themselves? I, I go to tournaments, I see people I play with, and they're talking to me about the players. Like my tall friend, he liked watching Del Potro. He, was, he liked Del Potro and he liked Burdick. He liked going to him. And my tenacious friend, he liked Nishikori and David Ferrer. And I'm looking for lefties, right? I'm looking for lefties and I'm looking for kind of disruptors. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so about those stories. And we're very grateful that you've been around the sport of tennis for so long to give us those stories. Do you have, I'm going to narrow it down a little bit, say maybe let's try the last five years. Have you had a favorite moment, favorite story that, I mean, I know you're proud of your writing, but that you're most excited about? did a story just a couple months ago. This came to mind since we're just thinking about it. I spent a few days with Brad Stein, the great coach. Yeah, Tommy and Paul. I spent time with him in Fresno, and he was very generous with his time and his insight, and I got a sense of how he became Brad Stein as a person as a player, as a coach, and one of the things that's neat about Brad Stein, he wasn't a world-class player. He and 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 I think a world-class player becomes a coach. He is like a football team that automatically gets well past midfield. You know, if you're an X-rated player, you can show up with a player, and he'll listen to you. Anyway, a guy like Brad Stein, he had to earn it. He he was a fine college player, but he wasn't even a great college player, and so as a result, he had to really earn his stripes, and so that flavors every way he goes about coaching and thinking about the game and he talks about about players and some moments and his willingness though someone in that position you'd think they would say whatever it takes to keep the job but no he's he's willing to say what they need to say he's not a concierge he's a consultant you got to say a coach has got to be willing to be fired every day and tell a player this is what you need to know and i just i think i clicked with him because i guess i mean again at one level, writing is meant to be analytical and distance. At another level, I think writers are drawn to their kind of subjects of choice. It's like I liked of the great American generation. I ended up writing a lot about Michael Chang, and I think he was the one I found the most relating to of tenacity and all that. And with Brad, I think, oh, yeah, I get it. You're kind of an undersized walk-on, and people don't think, and so you got to kind of prove it. It's just like the same reason why I like Jimmy Connors. Why I like Jimmy Connor, and the same reason why I'm a little more of a Nadal than a Federer person. I kind of think, all right, this is kind of what life is about. You're kind of like a walk-on in life, and you got to kind of earn it. And so that story was really fun. Writing about Brad, talking to students, his players like Tommy Paul and Jim Currier and Jonathan Stark, and he's um, a young guy he's working with named Ethan Quinn, who's a very promising junior. So I think taking in the Brad Stein journey. Is that getting those coaches' insight again, right? They're so valuable. The coaches' insight, but also kind of, I think, the quantity of time. Mm-hmm. Is, as we both know, it's, it's not always easy to get, um, to get one-on-one time with active players. We negotiate yeah, for right. that in increments of five or ten minutes, so that's kind of quick. But when you can get a few days with someone who loves the game, like Brad Stein, that's just gold. Yeah, it's awesome. And last question for you. As far as pushing yourself for the future what would you say you're most excited about in in your work ahead you know this is sounds good this is going to sound like something out of a writer's workshop but i'm looking for new ways to constantly kind of organize my stories to have them be structured the ones i write at tournaments tend to be a little more newspaper like you don't have as much time but some of the longer stories i wrote some features i like to think about how i can kind of organize them to be compelling you know like I call I use a term for stories sometimes I call it the tyranny of chronology 
and that can be a dangerous trap to fall into writing a story. And so I think when writing like a profile or a history piece or a theme piece, maybe we don't always start with now and go and go in order of what happens. Maybe who knows what happened? What are the ideas? So I, I spend time when I work on those longer pieces, I'll take note cards and I'll put them on a bulletin board in different sequences and what order they're gonna be. And so I'm my focus is on trying to help people understand this sport. I don't think people my quest with Jimmy Connors began I thought Connors helped people understand that tennis was not something like out of a Merchant's Ivory movie. People before, oh, tennis, it's a nice little garden party. I said, no, it's not room with a view, it's good fellas. And I needed that legitimacy because I didn't, I didn't want the sport I loved to be thought of as a sissy sport. And Connors, he brought tennis into, he was the first rock star. And so my continued quest is I need people to understand this sport. It's sort of like the thing about today's game. I was talking to a parent recently. They were telling me how much they love Federer, but could their kid even begin to imitate Roger Federer? I said, you know what? I'm no genius, but um, I can hit a slice backhand and a topspin backhand in the same rally. I can hit a drop shot approach. I can come in on a return. You know, why not? Why not? And so I think my upside is to continue to find new, interesting ways to help people understand the sport more. I think that's awesome. Well, we're, we're so lucky to have you around the sport, Joel. I've known you for a long time, and your stories are fantastic. So thank you so much for sharing everything. Thank you, Jill, for having me. Yeah.